Welcome to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. Tonight, we're taking a long look at another one of my personal favorites, Chopping Mall, from 1986. I guess I'm just not used to being chased around a mall in the middle of the night by killer robots. As simple as it may seem on its surface, and it is very simple, which is part of its genius, Chopping Mall is also a first-rate example of what you can accomplish with very little money and an endless amount of passion for filmmaking. It's golden age science fiction meets teen slasher. It has action, comedy, romance, a little bit of a Western motif at one point. It's the very embodiment of the 80s, a love letter to Roger Corman, and most importantly, it's an hour and 35 minutes of pure, unadulterated fun. It's got a lot going on. I've been planning this episode since April. I may have over-prepared for it, actually. We'll see how it goes. I even reached out to Chuck Serino, whose score for Chopping Mall is, in my opinion, one of the best of the era, and he was kind enough to write back to me, which was so awesome, and he provided me with some additional insights into the making of the music. I'm just stupidly excited to finally be diving into it all. But before we can do that, I have a couple of quick points of interest, and before we can get into those, it's time to announce the winner of the giveaway. Sadly, I don't actually own a talking trash can from Sharper Image, but I did toss everyone's name into a virtual hat, and so, without much ado at all, really, the winner of the Chopping Mall giveaway is... North Bend Bear. Congratulations, North Bend Bear. You have won a Collector Series Blu-ray of Chopping Mall from Shout Factory. I own a copy of this myself. It has fantastic special features, including some great commentary tracks and the isolated score. If you've never watched Chopping Mall with the isolated score, please do that. You're also getting a pinback button from Puppet Craft and a sticker that I bought so long ago for this. I forget where it came from. I think maybe it was Sticker Space or... Redbubble, I have no idea, but they're all yours. Thanks so much to everyone who signed up for this. I would love to do more of these in the future, at least alongside these deep dives, because they're just, they're so much fun for me. So thank you for indulging me and letting me give you some free stuff. Also, North Bend, I'll be contacting you on Instagram where you signed up to get your mailing address. So I hope you're comfortable giving that to me. <clears throat> I'm not sure why I laughed a little creepily at the end there. Moving on. Our first point of interest, it can't be avoided. We have to talk about the Munsters trailer. I want a man that makes my blood run cold. A man that every time he enters my crypt, it's like a stake through my dead black heart. This trailer is causing so much commotion on the internet right now. People are upset. And I get it. The trailer is a mess. The color grading is a complete eyesore. The audio is all over the place. The editing leaves a lot to be desired in terms of comedic timing and cohesion. It's easily one of the sloppiest and most confusing trailers I've seen in recent years. Now, admittedly, I'm not as emotionally attached to or protective of the monsters as I am, say, the Addams Family. 
I'm looking at you, Tim Burton. So please feel free to take all of this with a grain of salt. My suspicion and my hope is that this trailer was rushed out at the behest of Universal 1440 to get something out there in response to production delays, and that what we see in the final cut will be much less of a hot mess. If the trailer was a rush job, it could explain why the audio sounds like it hasn't been mixed yet, why the editing is a little manic and the colors are so off. Granted, it doesn't justify the content, which was more blindsiding than anything else. I find it odd that Rob Zombie has chosen to tell an origin story for Lily and Herman, you know, the story of how they fell in love, because that removes Eddie and Marilyn from the equation, effectively killing some of the family dynamics that made the monsters so special. And as far as the performances are concerned, Jeff Daniel Phillips and Sherry Moon Zombie aren't really giving me Fred Gwynn and Yvonne DiCarlo vibes at all. The aesthetic is there. Phillips is wearing the makeup really well, and Sherry Moon does look beautiful, but yeah, their performances are just vastly different from that of the original characters, especially Sherry Moon Zombies. She seems to be channeling Lee Merriweather from The Monsters Today, which was that revival series that came out in the late 80s. It's cutesy, bubbly, cartoony, and a little over the top, whereas Yvonne DiCarlo was a little more reserved, more matronly, and she had that amazing voice. It was very velvety and sultry. Have you done everything? Have you put away your toys and brushed your fangs? <laughs> All right, that's fine, Eddie. Good night. It feels strange that Sherry Moon chose a version of Lily that a lot of us are less familiar with. The whole thing is just surprising. We all know how much Rob Zombie loves the monsters, and he's been so excited about this movie, I don't think any of us anticipated it looking and feeling this bad. But it ultimately might not be. At the end of the day, this is essentially fan fiction being created by people who are very passionate about these characters. And as difficult as it is for me to have faith in Rob Zombie as a filmmaker, I'm not a huge fan of the majority of his films. I am actively trying to have faith in his determination to do something outside of his wheelhouse and his love for the monsters. Also, and I know I say this a lot, but it's always true, as long as they're having a good time making their movie, it's hard for me to rail too hard against that. I just personally hope the final cut will be better. Hey guys, Molly from the future here. Since recording my initial thoughts on the first Monsters trailer, a second version was released promoting the physical copies of the film, you know, like Blu-ray, DVD, etc. And I personally recommend giving that one a watch if you're interested. The production issues are still present, obviously, but it's edited very differently. We're actually getting to see some of the jokes play out and uh, some extensions of scenes we were only seeing fragments of in the, the original version. I just, I enjoyed this second trailer quite a bit more than the first, so. I recommend checking it out. I also forgot to mention how wonderful Daniel Roebuck's performance of Grandpa Munster is. I'm probably gonna have to watch this fucking movie. Okay, I said that would be quick. Apparently I lied. In Scream 6 news, as much of a perpetual downer as that's been for a lot of us lately, something fun is coming out of it. Over at Slash Film, BJ Colangelo pointed out that now with Nev Campbell no longer returning as Sidney Prescott, Courtney Cox's return as Gail Weathers will set a neat horror record. In BJ's article, it states that Cox's return as Gail Weathers will make her the first woman to play the same character at least six consecutive times in horror history, which I think is fucking 
fucking awesome. I may not be all that thrilled about Scream 6, but I'm really happy for Courtney Cox. I said this a few months back, but Gail Weathers has, over the years, become one of my favorite final girls, and she's been through hell to earn that moniker. I feel like Courtney Cox deserves a little something extra. In about two seconds, I'm gonna revitalize your face with my tarnished brand. I still got it. For a little recommended reading, over at Dread Central, Chad Collins brings us 10 bloody great horror movie decapitations. We've got The Omen, Friday the 13th, of course, Hereditary, High Tension, and Halloween H2O. Let us not forget fantastic decapitation in Halloween H2O. The only film I felt wasn't included on the list and should have been was Prom Night. The catwalk decapitation in Prom Night, no contest, my all-time favorite. And lastly, over at Bloody Disgusting, we have another delightful yet torturous installment of Phantom Limbs from Jason Jenkins, entitled Bubba Nosferatu. Don Coscarelli and Stephen Romano detail the unmade Bubba Hotep sequel. In this article, Jenkins writes, in the wake of Bubba Hotep's successful DVD release, Coscarelli set his eye toward developing a follow-up. Though the end credits teased a brush with vampires, Coscarelli initially considered doing Bubba Sasquatch, which would have found Elvis battling a clan of murderous Bigfoot. In addition to this approach, Coscarelli also considered throwing Colonel Tom Parker into the mix, seeing Elvis's corrupt manager as a metaphorical vampire who could easily be written as a literal bloodsucker for the sequel. I hate phantom limbs, you guys. I really need and humbly request both Bubba Nosferatu and Bubba Sasquatch in my life right now. Someone get it, you undead sack of shit. Alright, that's pretty much all I've got for tonight. There were a handful of other trailers dropped recently that I had wanted to touch down on, but I spent so much time talking about the monsters, I kind of skirted right past those. We had Orphan First Kill, Jeepers Creepers Reborn, Halloween Ends. They were all pretty good as far as trailers go. I mean, they were all better than the monsters. If you're new to this podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on Final Girl Friday elsewhere. And as usual, if you haven't seen Chopping Mall from 1986, proceed with caution because I'm about to spoil the entire film for you. If you've been hanging around the show for a while, it may come as no surprise that I'm a bit of a nostalgic person. <laughs> I get really attached to things, okay? It's a key component in my ongoing struggle with horror movie remakes, and it's also the reason I've had the same favorite band since 2004, which I just realized this morning was 18 years ago. <laughs> I've had the same favorite band for 18 years. And there are a few select things from the past that were such a huge part of my childhood, I'm sure they were a huge part of yours as well, that I've had an especially difficult time saying goodbye to, things that really just don't exist much anymore. Like video rental stores, drive-in movie theaters, and the mall. I miss the mall so much. And I, I know that malls were monuments to rampant commercialism, but they weren't pretending not to be, and instead went the other way by turning shopping into this epic experience. It was a spectacle. Unfortunately, as we all know, at least here in the Midwestern United States, malls are virtually non-existent now. There are some indoor malls still standing, but it's just, it's 
It's not the same. And for those of us here in Nebraska, the only ways we really get to experience malls are through urban decay tours, you know, people combing through the ruins of dead malls, which is so fucking depressing. And thankfully, horror movies. The horror genre is keeping malls alive. You have Stranger Things, Fear Street, and the like revitalizing the magic of shopping malls, turning them into these mythical playgrounds, which really isn't far from the truth. And then you have a handful of fantastic films set in the mall during their heyday. The Initiation, Night of the Comet, Dawn of the Dead, which I realize was late 70s and malls kind of hit their peak in the mid 80s. But still, Dawn of the Dead, very memorable horror film set in a mall. But perhaps for me, anyway, the reigning champion, the quintessential shopping mall horror film is and forever shall be Chopping Mall, which sees the fictional Park Plaza Mall terrorized by a trio of murderous security robots turned killbots by a lightning storm. Their victim pool largely consists of a group of charismatic young mall employees having an after-hours orgy in a furniture store, as we all did at that age, and eventually what's left of the party band together to take the killbots down. It all culminates in a bloodbath, an explosive victory for the final girl, and a happy ending, because this was the 80s when horror movies still had those sometimes. It's high-energy, non-stop fun with pizza and lasers. I cannot adequately express how much I love this film. There are many things the movie does right, and I promise we'll get to them. But what struck me most about it this month, what I enjoyed the most during this round of rewatches, is something I don't think the people involved ever even intended. Chopping Mall serves as a living, breathing time capsule for both the 1980s and that singular experience, the spectacle that was the mall. Most of the film was shot at the Sherman Oaks Galleria in California, which architecturally, you couldn't pick a better mall. I mean, I know they, I think they wanted to shoot at the Beverly Center. That's the mall they used for the exterior shots, but the Beverly Center fell through. Sherman Oaks was their second choice. And I, I personally feel like Sherman Oaks was perfect. It's also where Fast Times at Ridgemont High was shot, Commando, Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. You guys remember Phantom of the Mall? <laughs> I haven't thought about that movie in a really long time. Several episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer were also shot there. And in the opening credit sequence for Chopping Mall, you have this kind of montage that captures these forgotten details, like those giant Coke cups you would get from the food court that never had lids for some reason and would get really soggy if you didn't drink the soda fast enough. And the fact that there was nary a mall bench that didn't have a couple making out on it. And the wardrobe is... <laughs> fucking fantastic. You've got Barbara Crampton running around in a pink lace onesie with her hair teased to hell, pointing out the radicalness of everything around her. <laughs> so much hairspray. The guys are all wearing blazers. There's a YouTube channel called In Praise of Shadows. In their video essay, Why You Should Watch Chopping Mall, they wrote, From its color scheme to its music, setting, gratuitous sex, violence, and fashion, Chopping Mall might just be one of the most 80s-feeling horror films to come out of the decade. And I couldn't agree more. Watching this movie feels like going back in time. I think Singleton left a pack of camels under the register. Camels? No way. You know I only smoke virgin lights. The film also has this carefree, upbeat energy, in part because of how much fun everyone seems to be having on set, which gives it a wholesome quality that shouldn't be able to coexist with its exploitative nature, but it does. And I think a lot of that comes down to the director. Chopping Mall was directed by Jim Wynorski, director of Sorority House Massacre 2 and Not of This Earth, who is perhaps most well-known for his vast library of softcore horror porn parodies, such as Cleavage Field, The Witches of Brestwick, and The 
Bear Wench Project, which I gotta tell you, so I, okay, <laughs> so I had never seen any of these movies. And a while back, I, I checked out the Bear Wench Project just to give it a skim, maybe watch the first five minutes so that I could know what I was talking about tonight. I wound up watching the entire thing. It was surprisingly entertaining. Am I the only one who thinks softcore horror porn is kind of adorable? <laughs> Tony, did you see something? What were you no, seeing? No, I just felt something. What was it? Like an incredible orgasm. <laughs> it was great. It seemed like the cast was having a really good time. Nobody was taking it too seriously. And I'm starting to think this is just a signature Jim Wynorski thing. No matter what his movies may be about, they seem like they are a blast to be a part of. And I think that that plays a big role in what a fun movie Chopping Mall is. Of course, it wasn't just him. The film was co-written by his friend Steve Mitchell, and the two drew a ton of inspiration from the film's executive producer, the king of wholesome schlock, Roger Corman. I'm almost positive that everyone listening to this is familiar with Roger Corman, but in case you aren't, you can enjoy Chopping Mall in so many different ways, but I think to get the most out of it, it's important to have at least a cursory knowledge of who Roger Corman is. Roger Corman, also known as the Pope of Pop Cinema, is a producer, director, and sometimes actor with over 500 film credits to his name over a period of nearly 70 years and counting. A lot of people seem to think he's dead, but he's not. He's 96 years old, and he produced a film last year. Corman's career as a producer really took off in the mid-50s, where he was producing predominantly science fiction, horror, and western films. You had Monster from the Ocean Floor, The Beast with a Million Eyes, uh, It Conquered the World, Attack of the Crab Monsters, which a couple of characters are watching at one point in Chopping Mall. I don't know why I watch these things. I'm scared so easily. I'm sorry, I should have told you about that. I've seen this one a few times. And he's known for, among many other things, turning out hit after hit in the independent film circuit. He makes movies cheap, he makes them quickly, and he's been unprecedentedly successful at it. His wife Julie, who produced Chopping Mall, is the founder of Trinity Pictures and a member of the International Women's Forum. She had a deal with Vestron Video to make a movie set in a mall, approached Wynorski to write it, and being a longtime admirer of Corman and Corman's contemporaries, he agreed to write upon the condition that he could direct. Wynorski has cited Corman as the reason he became a filmmaker in the first place, and his love of Corman's legacy is ever-present throughout Chopping Mall. This leads me to one of the film's most unique character traits, in my opinion, which is that it melds together the style and formula of slasher films at a time when the world just couldn't get enough of them with the campy science fiction of the 50s in a way that I have seen done seldomly, if ever. There are loads of Corman in-jokes throughout the film. Our two main characters, Allison and Ferdy, have this classic on-screen chemistry. I feel like you could easily drop them into, like, Forbidden Planet or The Blob, and I think they'd feel right at home. And perhaps the most prominent example of that fusion of eras are the Killbots themselves. Thank you. Have a nice day. The Protector 101 series robots are a huge part of the charm of Chopping Mall, and they don't look or act anything like the other killer robots of the day. They're not T-800s, there's no humanoid quality to them at all beyond their modulated voices, which were done by Jim Wynorski, and they aren't stop-motion animated like the ED-209 from Robocop either, so they don't have a wide range of motion. But this was all intentional, as they were modeled closely after the robots Gog and Mugog from an indie sci-fi film called Gog from 1954. They have these massive 
massive, um, almost triangular bodies, retractable gadgets, and they were operated almost entirely by remote control. They were cost-effective as well, built by SFX artist Robert Short to run on 12-volt car batteries and electric wheelchair motors. They were pieced together with wheelchair and conveyor belt parts, rubber striping, and roller skate wheels, uh, and their arms are those little, uh, like, plastic Japanese grabby hand toys. <laughs> At their fastest speed, they moved about eight miles per hour, and the only thing that they couldn't do with them on set remotely was fire lasers. Well, that and they couldn't go up escalators because they were fucking huge. Setting these retro robots loose in a mall against horny teenagers of this era was a stroke of genius that just gets better with age. Jesus. What's that? Robot blood. Are they scary? Of course not. No, they're not scary, but I fall more in love with the Killbots every time I see the movie. They're crafty, occasionally sneaky, quite skilled at blowing someone's head off, a little sassy, which actually reminds me. So I mentioned this in a little video short thing that I did for Instagram a while ago. Kelly Maroney, who plays Allison Parks, the final girl of the film, she theorized that the Killbots each had a distinct personality. They were numbered. The design for the numbers was actually borrowed from uh, the man from Uncle. So you had one, two, and three. And according to Maroney, Killbot 1 was kind of a Joe Friday type. He was all business, just there to get the job done. Killbot 2 was more of a stealthy prankster type, but not very bright. She was very clear about that. And Killbot 3 was the Clint Eastwood, the dirty Harry of the bunch, you know, brutal and out for blood. And in one of the commentaries that Wynorski, Mitchell, and Maroney did together for the Collector series, Wynorski and Mitchell actually agree with this analysis, and they actually point out a couple of instances where they're exhibiting those behaviors. So it was just a theory Maroney had, but it is now officially canon. I'm not sure. The one thing that I'm unclear on is, were the Killbots accidentally rewired by the lightning strike? Like, it fucked with their programming? Was it the same as it was in GOG, and were aliens controlling them? Or did the lightning somehow make them sentient? If it's the latter, their catchphrase of have a nice day takes on a whole new meaning. <laughs> if you're listening to this and you have a theory either way, I would love to hear it. Do you think the Killbots were defective or just plain evil? In addition to the Killbots, the human cast and characters are also two of the film's greatest strengths. There isn't a single character I don't at least get a kick out of. Oh no, it's a terrible color. Give me another color. What if he's not my type? Oh yeah, that's it. Lush is lush. Susie, are you listening? What are we gonna do all night? Will you stop worrying? Like I said, he's got a great personality. We have Allison, who, as previously mentioned, was played by Kelly Maroney of Night of the Comet. She is our final girl, and she has been set up on a blind date with the shy and awkward but lovable Ferdy, played by Tony O'Dell from The Karate Kid and Cobra Kai. I love the reveal of Allison Parks. She just turns the chair around, and it's just this beautiful shot of her smiling with perfect music. Ferdy looks at her, and his whole world changes, you know. Allison and Ferdy are fucking precious. I love them in this. While their friends are having sex all around them in the furniture store, Ferdy and Allison are sitting on a sofa watching Attack of the Crab Monsters. And I love that. I love that you have, like I said, this, this orgy going on in the background. But the thought of doing that is just the farthest thing from their minds. They're just really enjoying each other's company and just creates this really fun dichotomy. What I like most about Allison's journey is the pacing of it. This isn't a situation where she is meek and helpless through the entire film and then during the last 
last 10 minutes, she becomes like Rambo. There's a there's a nice ramp up. You know, when we first meet her, she has that sweet, pristine, innocent young woman thing going on. And gradually throughout the film, we're seeing her assert herself just a little bit more here and there at the furniture store in her interactions with Ferdy. We think we understand her, but then we're not quite sure. There's there's an inner strength and a kind of spunkiness there. One of my favorite moments with her is when the girls who are in the process of running away come back to join the fight with the guys against the Killbots. They stop off at Peckinpah's Sporting Goods. <laughs> named for Sam Peckinpah, which makes me so happy. And uh, Linda, the mechanic, played by Carrie Emerson, is teaching them how to make Molotov cocktails in these gas cans. Allison is paying very close attention to her, absorbing that knowledge. And then just a couple of seconds later, while the other girls are talking amongst themselves, Allison's like shoving a road flare into her bra, <laughs> which turns out to have been a very good idea. She manages to hold it together when she is covered in snakes and spiders at the pet store. <laughs> Kudos to both Allison and Kelly Maroney for that one. And by the end, when it's down to her and the last remaining killbot, she devises an elaborate trap for this fucking robot and delivers an epic callback zinger as she's blowing it up. It, it's a very badass moment. And that evolution is very well paced. My favorite character in the film, though, is, is actually Mike, played by John Terleski. Greg. Come on. Dude. The fridge is packed. All right, good. He's such a schmooze. He's chewing gum through the entire movie, which was apparently Terleski's idea. I love everything about him. He's like a human cartoon character. And again, just another one of those characters that is like the very embodiment of the 80s. I wish he had survived a little longer because Chopping Mall has such an epic final battle. I would love to have seen Mike all suited up alongside Greg and Rick and Ferdy just ready to take on the bots. Like I just, I think Terleski would have been a lot of fun during those uh, final battle scenes. I also feel that way about Susie played by Barbara Crampton. Don't get me wrong, I love her death. Who doesn't love a good immolation scene? But she had such great energy. She lit up every room that she was in in this film, you know, because that's Barbara Crampton and that's what she does. Barbara Crampton is also one half of my favorite pairing in this film. You know, much like My Bloody Valentine, all of the characters are kind of paired off. Susie is dating Greg, played by Nick Siegel. I think the two of them have the best chemistry. They play really well off of one another. And it's because of Greg and Susie that we get to experience my favorite line in Chopping Mall. You smell like pepperoni. Well, if that's the way you feel. Wait a minute. What? I like pepperoni. I never get tired of hearing it. And then you have a handful of great cameos. You have Dick Miller, which I don't know if you would call it a cameo because he's, he's just playing a character in the film. We just don't see a whole lot of him. But he's there playing one of the film's most memorable roles, a grumpy janitor whose name is curiously Walter Paisley, which is the same name as his character in A Bucket of Blood, directed by Roger Corman in 1959. While I would have to award best death in the film to Leslie, whose head explodes. My second favorite death in the film is for sure Dick Miller. I get such a kick out of almost all the cameos in this film. You've got Garrett Graham from Used Cars and Terror Vision, who plays the second scientist kind of monitoring the Killbots while Graham is sitting there and the Killbots are waking up behind him. He's reading a collection of sci-fi stories called They Came From Outer Space, which was published in 1981 and was edited by none other than Jim Wynorski. During the opening credit sequence, we get this great sight gag where a kid is attempting to smile a stack of records out under his shirt from uh, Licorice Pizza. And for the longest time, I would watch this movie and I would think, man, that's a great sight gag. Never actually looking 
at the kid's face. <laughs> Earlier this month, for the first time, I finally looked at that actor's face and realized it's Rodney Eastman who played Joey in Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and 4. When I finally realized that's who that was, it blew my mind. Also, apparently Angus Scrim has a cameo at the beginning of the film. Just after we watched the promo video with the jewelry store robbery, members of the audience are raising their hands to ask questions about the robots. Evidently, Angus Scrim is one of those people. I have watched the scene a few times and I, I know which character he is because it's been pointed out to me, but I barely recognize him. So sad that he wasn't in the movie more. During that, uh, I, I keep wanting to call it a press conference, but I, I think it's just a demonstration. During that scene, we get a couple of other cameos from Paul Bartel and Mary Warrenov. They're appearing as the characters Paul and Mary Bland from a 1982 black comedy called Eating Raul, which was also directed by Bartel. And their jokes don't quite land with me, but I'm guessing it's because I haven't seen Eating Raul. Out of context, they just feel a little out of place. <laughs> but it is great to see Mary Warrenov. Big fan of hers. All in all, a lot of great faces in this movie. And the performances get five stars from me across the board. Go ahead and laugh, you guys. But if I ever find a little bastard that did this, they're dead meat. Speaking of five stars, at the beginning of this episode, I talked about the thing I got the most enjoyment out of this time around, that sense of traveling back in time. But again, I don't think the filmmakers really could have known what they were creating in that sense at the time, at least not to the extent at which it exists today, you know? When it comes to deliberate decisions made for the film, I would have to say that the best choice Jim Wynorski made for Chopping Mall was hiring Chuck Serino to do the score. The Chopping Mall score is, in my opinion, I would say top three horror scores of the 80s, and definitely one of my top 10 favorite film scores of all time. The thing that really blows my mind about Chuck Serino's score for this film is that it was his first. He said in interviews that he hadn't expected to score another film after this. It was just a one and done kind of thing. He was doing it for Jim Wynorski. And since doing this in 1986, he's scored over 80 films. And for a first time score, for fuck's sake... In an interview Chuck did for the Collector Series edition of Chopping Mall, he talked about how when he was conceiving the music for the film, he was trying to put himself into the minds of the killbots. How would these robots think? And I think he fucking nailed that. A lot of the music feels like the inner monologue of the robots. And it makes those moments when we step away from the killbots, like the reveal of Allison, for example, uh, which is a very romantic and kind of windswept moment musically, or the showdown with Greg, Rick, and Ferdy when they walk out into the lobby, armed to the nines, ready to take on the killbot in a scene that is straight out of a spaghetti western. The synthetic variations on these types of music work perfectly with that inner monologue for the killbots that we're hearing the rest of the time. He also uses the opening theme multiple times over, reworking it, building on it, which is constantly bringing us back to the killbots and back to the excitement of our introduction to the film. It's it's a brilliant score, you guys. <laughs> As I was going through the special features from the Collector series, a couple of questions came up for me. I wanted to dig a little deeper into the creation of the music, so I took a shot and reached out to Chuck Serino. I asked him if I could pick his brain, and to my... <laughs> surprise, he wrote back to me and said yes. I thought that it might be fun to share our conversation here with you guys. It's like a new segment. We'll call it Reading Molly's Emails. Literally, the post office stands to be swamped, overwhelmed, drowned in a sea of mail. Where do we go from here? 
So the first question that I asked him was about how he was hired in the first place. Uh, Jim Wynorski had told this story about Chuck Serino handing him a cassette tape with a couple of themes on it, and Jim referred to one of those themes as the chopping mall theme. After hearing this cassette tape, he hired Chuck right away. So I asked him if the theme for chopping mall was composed specifically for the film concept, or if it was something he came up with on his own that Jim heard on the tape and, and thought would be a perfect fit. Chuck said, I had been directing TV commercials for Shadow Stevens, the renowned radio DJ. Jim and I were already friends, so he asked for a demo knowing I had access to Shadow's studio, which included a ton of synthesizers. Being this was a robot movie, I knew the Cormans were open to an electronic score, so I did a demo and got the gig. He also adds that he wishes he still had that demo. <laughs> So do I. I hadn't realized that Jim and Chuck were friends prior to working on this, and I think that's so cool that he worked for Shadow Stevens, and that he created the demo for the chopping mall theme in Shadow Stevens' studio. I then moved on to my favorite cue from the film, which Chuck refers to as the ecstasy of the robot, which is a reference to the ecstasy of gold from the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's the cue that plays during that showdown entrance, when the guys are about to face off with the bot. Jim Wynorski specifically requested a reference to Spaghetti Westerns in the score. He wanted that included in there somewhere. I asked Chuck if he was drawing inspiration directly from Morricone's music alone, or if there were other composers or Spaghetti Western films on his mind while he was scoring that particular moment. To which he replied, I am a fan of almost all Spaghetti Western music. And then he lists a fuck ton of composers, some of whom I know and some of whom I don't. And I guarantee that I'm going to fuck up half of these names. Nikolai Bakalov, Cipriani, Michalizzi, Rusticelli, Piccioni, Ordilani, The DeAngelis Brothers, Ferio, Lavagnino, and a few more. I think I got maybe three of those right. He also added that he recently finished scoring a spaghetti western called No Name and Dynamite, which by the way is available on Amazon Prime for $2.99. I rented it the day he told me about it, <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. It was cool to see Patrick Gorman, who played Father Pat in Alice Sweet Alice, and the score is amazing. The soundtrack for No Name and Dynamite is actually out on CD now. It's available at Shopify, I think. Um, this episode is not sponsored by Chuck Serino, by the way. I'll be posting this conversation on Slasher and Instagram once this episode has been up for a few days, because I really want to share this list of composers with, with all of you. Stepping back from specific moments in the film, I told him that I felt, as an observer, that Chopping Mall was kind of a blessed film, that everything just came together so much more smoothly than anyone involved had expected. And I asked him if there was one hard lesson he learned while scoring Chopping Mall that he's carried with him through throughout his career. And uh, his reply was, now that you've said it out loud, I believe you are correct. Many things came together on that production. The one thing I learned was that I could actually write film music. Before that, it was all tinkering in Hobbyland. But once I heard Jim Wynorski and Steve Mitchell's reaction to what I had done, something clicked in my head. Hey, I can do this. My career path had been directing commercials up to that point, so it was a real tweak in my brain. I have learned so much since then and regret some things too. Oh well. That answer makes me emotional, man. Like, I think it's so great. What was the lesson you learned when scoring this movie? I learned that I could score movies. As a kind of bonus question that has nothing to do with Chopping Mall, in various interviews with Chuck, he talks a lot about his love of vinyl. I know that he was really excited when uh, the score for Chopping Mall was released on vinyl. 
twice. So I asked him if he remembered the first album he ever bought on vinyl for himself, and he said yes. And I still own it, along with most of the LPs I bought in the 60s. It was a triple soundtrack album I purchased in 1964. I bought it because it contained music from John Barry's Born Free. It also contained Maurice Jarre's Dr. Zhivago and Grand Prix, but John Barry was my first realization that film music could be awesome. Before Born Free, I had discovered Elmer Bernstein's The Great Escape, but I couldn't find the LP in stores. I had to resort to making a cassette recording off the TV set, which was how I collected most soundtracks in the 60s. And then he included a photo of the album, which was just fucking cool. You're a classy guy, Chuck Serino. Thank you so much for answering my questions. As much as I love everything about Chopping Mall, I can't imagine the movie without its score. A few fun facts about Chopping Mall before we wrap up tonight. Chopping Mall was originally released under the title Killbots, but it did very poorly under that name at the box office, presumably because people thought that it was a kid's movie, especially with the original poster art uh, leaning heavily into the retro robot look. Legend has it that a janitor at one of the movie theaters where the film premiered suggested the title Chopping Mall. Somebody from the production heard it. About 15 minutes of the movie was cut and it was re-released in theaters as Chopping Mall. It did much better after that, but the film didn't actually achieve cult status until it was released on home video. The number of people who first watched this film after blindly renting it based on its cover art is, is fucking staggering. I mentioned earlier that the sporting goods store in the film was named in tribute to Sam Peckinpah, but the pet shop where Allison is hiding from the robots is called Roger's Little Shop of Pets, which is a reference to Roger Corman's Little Shop of Horrors from 1960. During the showdown, in order to prove he can handle himself, Ferdy declares he has seen the movie Dirty Harry 24 times. The pistol that he uses during that scene is a Smith & Wesson 44 Magnum Model 29, which is the same gun that was made famous by Clint Eastwood in Dirty Harry. While preparing Greg's death scene on the third floor of the mall, Jim Wynorski volunteered to test the stunt one floor down, which he did, but broke a rib in the process. He just kept on directing and didn't tell anyone that he had been injured until after they'd wrapped production. Chopping Mall was released on March 16th of 1986 and was shot in 22 days on a budget of $800,000. Jim Wynorski often talks about a meeting he had with Roger Corman shortly before filming Chopping Mall, saying he learned more about filmmaking in that one-hour lunch with Corman than he had in all of his time at film school. I would love to have been a fly on the wall during that conversation. And I have to wonder, you know, Roger Corman is famous for his philosophy of making the most of what you've got. If you're making a low-budget film, don't try to pretend it's a big-budget movie. Know what your limits are and try to work within them. I suspect that was probably something that Roger Corman said to Jim Wynorski during that meeting because that's exactly what Wynorski did with Chopping Mall. It was quick, it was cheap, it has a cast of incredibly lovable characters, a solid script, and a great setting. Much like malls themselves, the film isn't pretending to be anything other than what it is, which is a hell of a lot of fun. All right. 
right, before we say goodnight, for the first time in a long time, we have a new worst case scenario. If you're new here, worst case scenario is a silly little thing where I pose a hypothetical question relevant to the horror genre, post it on social media, and read my favorite responses. This week's scenario, you're trapped in the mall and robots are trying to kill you. Go figure. What store do you hide in and why? Sackhead said, definitely a music store. What's better than going out kicking some robot ass to some bitchin' music? Amen. Sassy Devil, using their brain, says, a Verizon store so I can try to call for help with one of their phones or search for an app that lets me control robots. <laughs> That's brilliant. I mean, you, I think you survive. Another graveyard ghost said, the last mall around me had one of those shops that was made for mall ninjas. Crossbows, maces, movie prop reproductions, cheap medieval plate armor that probably wouldn't hold up to a heavy sneeze. At least I'd go out in a mass-produced nightly fashion. It might be better to go Conan style for mobility and try to live my best life, crushing my robot enemies, seeing them driven before me, and hearing the lamentation of their mechanical women. <laughs> He then adds, if I was specifically in Chopping Mall, I'd just follow Barbara Crampton because dang, oh dang. <laughs> that was a very thoughtful answer. Graveyard, thank you. I remember those shops so well. Those were like the novelty shops that would pop up right as the mall was starting to die. They were like the raised mole of the mall world. If you saw it, you, you knew there was trouble ahead. Of Death says, I would make my way to Sears because everything in there can be a weapon. <laughs> Fucking Sears. Is Sears still around? I feel like they're not. Are they? I have to look it up. Sears is still alive and kicking since 1892. The Bonebreaker says, in that time period, a Walden Books or a B. Dalton bookstore, because what better way to pass the time while trapped in a mall? And the robots may not even notice I'm there, as I will be quietly reading. That is my tactic. Hide until the danger goes away. I would love to be trapped in a mall bookstore overnight. I'm pretty sure I had that fantasy all the time when I was a kid. Movie Man says, sporting goods. Best case scenario, firearms. Worst case scenario, metal baseball bats or anything useful to make traps. Masked Weirdo said, assuming I couldn't get to the inner passages of the mall. Take refuge in the food court. Eventually you're going to get hungry and thirsty. Also, kitchens are good places for many improvised weapons. So this is why you always want to make sure you surround yourself with horror fans in the event of an apocalypse or a natural disaster or a robot attack. They know what they're doing. <laughs> Tarman Dance is Bass Pro. They have jerky and weapons. Priorities. Gory Rory says, thinking on the fly here. <laughs> Sorry, I know what the rest of this says. Uh thinking on the fly here, but I would make two stops. First would be the nearest place in the mall where I could procure wire, tape, nails, and large batteries. Second stop would be the movie theater. Here, I would rig up all the aforementioned materials to the exposed metal bases of the theater seating near each of the entrances, and essentially create a weak yet effective enough electromagnetic field. I'd flip on a flick, draw the glorified Roombas in with a noise, let the electromagnetic field slow them down and screw them up just long enough that I, could, that I can make like a moderately successful later career M. Night Shyamalan movie and split. Would any of this work? Probably not. But is it something resembling a cheesy movie plan? Absolutely. Thinking on the fly. <laughs> Rory, this is why we're dating. If robots attack, I'm putting you in charge of strategy. <laughs> 
GoGoHead365 said, okay, I would not hide, but go into the movie theater in the mall. I would have them play some weird robot porn to lure them all in. Once they're all there, all horned up or whatever the robots get sexually, I'd inglorious bastard their asses, burn them bitches to the ground. <laughs> I feel like you and Rory need to, uh, need to get together and combine your plans because Rory's plan was a little bit more elaborate, but yours has porn in it. So I think the two of you need to collaborate. Captain Nemo said the Apple store. What self-respecting android would be found in there? <laughs> That's a pretty sick robot burn. Blood Milk and Sky said Williams-Sonoma because they have a lot of sharp things that could be used as weapons. See, again, a very practical and smart answer. Haunting Season said my mall had a dick sporting goods. Lots of trappy type stuff in there. I'm loving all of these trappy schemes. I think I think Allison Parks would be proud. M. Griff 86 also said dick sporting goods. They would have multiple weapons from firearms to melee. And if I'm going down, I'm going down fighting. M.R. Kessel said I'm heading to the food court, grabbing some bourbon chicken and then hiding in a freezer. I wish I could remember the name of the Chinese restaurant that was at the town mall, which was like the, the mall closest to where I grew up. We had quite a few big malls surrounding my hometown, but the town mall was was actually in the town where I grew up. And it was it was a pile of garbage. It was a terrible, pathetic excuse for a mall. But there was a Chinese restaurant in it that had the most delicious bourbon chicken I have ever had in my life. That horror witch said they got rid of the Sears at my mall, so my only other option would be the sporting goods store so I could find a bat or something. Ghostbustin84 said Radio Shack. I can use interference from their technological buddies to mess with them and hopefully goof up their frequencies so I can make it out alive. Clever. Very clever. Daryl Hardebacker said, I think Cabela's. They sell guns and other hunting equipment, including but not limited to gummy bear traps, bows, and various arrows. Probably not Legend of Zelda arrows though. Camouflage, fire starting equipment, and rations so I can survive a siege if it comes. God, so many good answers. Deuce said Sears. Is that still a thing? I'm pretty sure you could build either a suit of armor or your own killer robot. Worst case scenario, you can play ping pong till morning. Jeff the Nerd says Spencer's gifts because there would be lots of weird shit to use against them. <laughs> the Monster's Bride said, why the fuck was my first thought sharper image? Do those even exist anymore? <laughs> okay, but see, when I was first making the post about the giveaway, that's exactly what happened to me. I was trying to think of a store that was popular at the mall when I was a kid and the only store I could think of was Sharper Image. Maybe we were both traumatized in our youth at Sharper Images and we've suppressed the memories of having clocks that are also foot massagers hurled at our heads or something. I can confirm though that Sharper Image is actually still in business. There's not seem to be anything here that anyone absolutely needs. <laughs> well, it's true that nothing here is an essential, but I think a famous man once said, give me the luxuries of life and I'll do without the necessities. All right, wow. We had a lot of answers this time, and they were all good. Everybody's answers were so good. I want to say Dick Sporting Goods was the winner there. I think that was the one that got the most votes. We're going to have to defend ourselves. This place got a sporting goods store? Heck and pause. Thanks so much, guys, for participating in this week's Worst Case Scenario, as well as the giveaway, and for sticking around and taking a long look at Chopping Mall with me. Are you a fan of Chopping Mall? What's your theory about the Killbots? Were they defective or evil? If you have any thoughts at all you'd like to share about Chopping Mall, or any horror movie really, please feel free to reach out to me. You can find me on the Slasher app. My username is Final Girl Friday, Instagram at Molly Oblivion, or if you prefer old school correspondence, you can email me at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. If you're a fan of the show, um, consider checking out my Patreon. For a dollar a month, you get access to my secondary review series, Frighten Early, where I review horror movies on the fly, first thing in the morning. But no pressure. As always, I'm just happy you guys are here and listening. I'll be back hopefully soon talking about something. I don't know what. I hope you guys have an awesome week. As usual, stay safe, stay sane, have a nice day, and until next time, creep it real. <laughs> <laughs>